Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. So during, uh, you know, every summer I get about 10 days in Aspen, because there's a friend there who allows me to come and study. And um, so we were there this year, and my son Anthony that you saw on the screen holding the protein baby, uh, he lives in Colorado Springs, so he was going to drive up and see us, but he wasn't able to, wasn't able to drive uh, because of the fires. There were fires outside of Denver that wouldn't let you get to Aspen. You couldn't drive there. And uh, the fires, the smoke would, uh, at night... It would block all the beautiful views. And then in the daytime, you could see clearer, but, you, but it was harder to breathe uh, during the day. And so uh, there was just a smoky fog. Kind of a fitting description, description, I think, of the political and cultural atmosphere that we've lived in for uh, the last several uh, months for sure. Um, we feel like maybe you have felt like me. We, you, you just feel like you can't breathe, uh, that you don't have great vision, and you're a little disoriented by it all. Uh, soon after that, I had happened to pick up a, a book by Parker Palmer called A Hidden Wholeness. And he puts a slight twist on that. Uh, picture by drawing attention to the farmers uh, on the Great Plains, because at first sign of a blizzard, they would run a rope from their back door to their barn. Uh, And meteorologists, I understand still, at times in Canada and in the Great Plains, will advise, hey, uh, put a rope on your back door to wherever you're going, because... Farmers would venture out into their own backyards and because of the blinding snow uh, would literally lose sight of their home and die just feet away from their back door, unable to see it. Leonard Cohen, who is a, a poet, wrote this, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overturned the order of the soul. It's kind of how it feels. I have felt it inside of me personally, uh, but we probably feel it, but I've also felt it corporately. Uh, Who am I supposed to be? Who is the church supposed to be? So it gave me a scary feeling at times of helplessness, of hopelessness, uh, a little fearful. You don't know whether to scream or seethe or maybe you do both. But both are sort of isolating. Both reactions polarize. The church has always been careful about politics. Because political in church was always a dirty word. And so I'm, just, I'm not sure that we have all been really spiritually trained to think politically. We sort of have this two worlds that we live in, a political world and then a spiritual world. And so uh, we don't understand how the spiritual and the theological 
should form us politically. But there is an unavoidable political dimension to our calling and to our faith. But I think we've gotten a little caught up in the culture war as believers uh, without a whole lot of spiritual wisdom informing it. And so we have fallen for parties, we've fallen for personalities, single issue focused, claiming God on one side as if he were small enough to fit anywhere on this planet, even in our views. But even worse than being misinformed, I think, on some of the issues, because you got Christians everywhere on the map on this thing. Uh, we're acting. Let me say that again. Even worse than some of our misinformed positions is that we act like everyone else in attitude, rhetoric, hostility. We support issues without full knowledge. We're not compassionate. We're incapable of dialogue and intolerant. That's who the world is. That's the world. And we have become just like it. We feel under attack, so we attack. Our defensiveness is fueled by a fear, the fear of losing something, something we don't think we can live without. It's as if we believe that if our political agendas do not succeed, Christianity cannot succeed. If we lose America, we lose Christianity. And as we will see, they are not one and the same. Politics have become the hope of the secular world. It's all that they have to hold on to. But our attitudes, agendas, and actions have eroded what is the central purpose of our existence on this planet as believers. It has eroded the centrality of the gospel. We've lost sight of who we are as citizens of heaven and who we are as supposed to be as the church. Christianity is not dependent on any particular political or social or cultural environment to thrive. or to fulfill God's plan in the world. God has never needed any particular political policies to run his kingdom, ever. Do you remember when Jesus was in front of Pilate and Pilate said, do you know that I have the authority and the power to kill you? And not just kill you. I can kill you in a certain way. A way that would devastate you, your followers, and everything you've ever said. 
I can rip from you so much dignity that no one would, everyone would regret having even known you by the death I can give you. I can make everything you've ever said sound hollow. I can put an end to all of your followers' aspirations. And Jesus looked at him and said, two things we cannot forget. You only have the power my Father gives you. You have no other power. And number two, my kingdom's not of this world, so nothing you do can affect it. Nothing you do can affect it. My kingdom, in essence, Jesus said, is not dependent on you, politics, your decisions, your power, your purposes. It's bigger and beyond any political party, any political personality, any political system. The reality, or that reality, definitely changes the stakes for us as believers. It changes what we're about, what we aim for, and especially how we treat people. Jesus, on that very same cross that the political powers put him on, forgave his killers and invited a criminal to spend eternity with him. It's a different kingdom. And even after Jesus rose from the dead, All the power and the presence of God was used to form the church, a spiritual body, a community, much to the consternation of the Jews and Israel who rejected Jesus because he wasn't political and because he wasn't social and because he wasn't cultural. And to this day they reject him for that very same reason. That leads me to this series. This series is going to hurt. I don't think I've done a harder series, and I really thought about it, because some have almost done me in. This one might. Uh, I was going to do the Sermon on the Mount. We were going to start the Sermon on the Mount, but... uh, in so many ways, God just kept driving me into the book of 1 Peter, which we're not going to go verse by verse through the whole book. We're just, we're going to, we just decided to sit in there for a little while to, to tease some of these ideas out. Um, and it's sort of become my rope in the whiteout. That's what I'm hoping it will become for you. Connecting me to church, our identity, our purpose as the people of God. And I think it will guide us how to interact with our culture. First Peter is written to Christians who by virtue of the anti-God culture, the pagan culture that they live in, were suffering, paying a very high price for their faith in their lifestyles, which were countercultural. Listen, countercultural at all of the levels that have sort of surfaces, the primary things today, cultural, social, political, economic. 
which for Peter was very normal. These are things you should expect. You should expect to be countercultural. People, or Peter will make it very clear that the greatest threat to the church is not outside it. It's inside it. It's not atheism, it's not opposition, it's not skepticism, it's not secularism, it's not materialism, it's not political systems or persons. We've already been told that nothing external will defeat the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a fact. If it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt from the inside. If we lose our identity, if we lose who we are and what we're here for and how God wants us to interact with the world, that is what's at stake. That that may very well shock you. And it might take the entire series, maybe never, to believe that. You might never believe that the biggest problem the church has is inside it. So you're being told that the most important thing you can do as a Christian right now is vote. Of course you should vote. It is not the most important thing in the spiritual life. Peter is going to call you to actions that are far harder than getting in a booth and checking a box. But we think the fate of Christianity hangs on a vote. And so I read things like, Phil Robertson's book just just came out. He's asking questions like, what does your vote say about your soul? Is that really the spiritual question on the table? His book's called Jesus Politics. Be careful. Subtitled, How to Win Back the Soul of America. Is that what we're here for? To win back the soul of America? Is that what has become your greatest passion and concern? I read an article by Eric Metaxas. Smart guy, smarter than I'll ever be. Love him. Conservative radio host, author. I've read a number of his books over the last couple summers. And he has this, he was interviewed by the Christian Post. And uh, he's arguing in this interview why we have a moral obligation to vote Republican. Uh, No other option. And he makes his case. My concern for the article were numerous. But my greatest concern was it's couched in the language of fear. Or it's not an article, it was an interview. 
Let me tell you some of the things I heard. Uh, Fear for the church is what his concern was. Fear for the church. Phrases like, before it's too late. Too late for what? No freedom to preach. Hey, welcome to 99% of the planet. Uh, It'll do harm to churches. How's it going to hurt the church? We won't be as free. Still obligated to live exactly how God told us to live. We're not going to do any. We're going to be who we're called to be in any time, in any, any place, in any culture. How are we going to be God's hands in the world? What do you mean, how are we going to be God's hands in the world? We can be God's hands in the world anywhere on this planet. Again, the, the mentality is if America goes, the church goes. Granted, in America, our national history is an exception. 244 years, Christianity. You know, we've been kind of free to do what we want. Christianity has survived and thrived as the minority culture for all of its existence. In his book, Cultural Intelligence, Bach writes this, the church emerged from a small corner of the Greco-Roman world. It had no social or political power. All the cultural forces were, were arrayed against it. It was seen as a fringe and treated as such. Yet somehow the early church was able, get this, to launch a movement that has far outlasted Rome, which was considered the eternal city, the eternal, ultimate political power. It's gone, we're still here. This is the group of people that Peter's writing to. He's actually writing from Rome to these provinces in Rome. Where Christianity, if you were looking at it, if we lived in that day with sort of the mindset we have today, we'd be thinking, well, Christianity is about to be wiped out. What's going to become of the church? What does he say to them? Does he say change Rome? Does he say win Rome? Does he say win anything? He says be winsome. Be winsome. If you go through 1 Peter, I want to know what he tells us to do. Be holy because I am holy. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to keep away from fleshly desires that do battle against the soul. Maintain good conduct among the non-Christians. Be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake, whether to a king as supreme or to governors as those he commissions to punish wrongdoers. For God wants you to silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Live as free people, not as, not using, even though you're not, 
use your freedom as a pretext, not for evil, but to do good. Honor all people. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. Be harmonious, sympathetic, affectionate, compassionate, humble. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but instead bless others because you're called to inherit a blessing. Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope you possess. Do it with courtesy and respect. Keep a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct could be put to shame. It's better to suffer for doing good if God wills it than for doing evil. For the culmination of all things is near. Be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of prayer. Above all, keep love for one another fervent. It covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. Don't complain. Use your gifts. Speak or serve. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but glorify God that you bear such a name. That's what you're hearing from Peter. There's a text in 1 Peter. In the midst of their suffering, which we'll see how great it is, from society, Peter is going to say something that is literally shocking. For it is time for judgment to begin starting with the house of God. And if it starts with us, what will be the fate of those who are disobedient to the gospel of God? If it's going to be hard for us, it's going to be really hard for people who don't. And if the righteous are barely saved, when was the last time you read that phrase? What will become of the ungodly and sinners? So then let us, or those who suffer according to the will of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do good. What is this saying? This is such an important message for the church. Because if we're going to be who God wants us to be, this house, in the midst of this society, we're going to have to be everything he just, Peter just read for us to be in order for us to impact the world, which is God's first concern. That's his first concern. The truth is, I'm guilty of it. I'm guilty of all the things that I'm saying. I want my Christianity to be comfortable. I want it to be as pain-free as possible. And what's happening is, the desire for life to be without pain is, is forcing our political views to impact who we are more than spirituality and theology. 
So my idea of Christianity is being shaped by the politics of the day. That is a very critical concern. What does it mean that our suffering is part of the judgment? Because most of us would think, oh, God's going to judge this sick world we live in. And you've probably never asked for it more. But God uses the very same angst and agony of the whole world is is being used to refine the church, to purify the church. That's why Peter says a little bit earlier in chapter 3, or uh, chapter four. Don't, don't, don't think this fiery challenge is strange. Your purification through these times, he says to the church, that suffering in an anti-God society is refining you. It's making you more like me the way I suffered Rejoice in that. We're not rejoicing in that. Think about Revelation. We'll have to look at Revelation a little bit. Where else do you see political, social, economic, religious unrest any more than you do in Revelation? What does he tell the church to do there? Phenomenal implications for how to live today. Just personally, if I, I got to tell you this, this is going to hurt too. If I hear one more preacher say, Are you ready for the rapture? I'm going to puke. Gosh, we're missing it, Hillside. And all we want. It's for, Christ, for America to make it easy as possible for us to be Christians. So we, we fear for what's going to happen to the church, what we will be allowed to do and won't be allowed to do. And we want to get out of here when the suffering starts. Peter's going to grab you by the neck and pull you in. Judgment begins with the house of God. We keep thinking we're not going to experience Uh, When God pours out his judgment, it doesn't affect us. Oh, no, it refines us. That's the difference. That's the hope we have. It doesn't condemn us. It refines us. But we're not disassociated from it. Why do you think Jesus deals with the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 before he gets to the rest of the book? Because if the church isn't what it's supposed to be in 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 a world that's a mess, how in the world do you even impact it? But we have, all of our folks are saying, oh, Revelation 4, this is the rapture. What? That's just a pet peeve. That's what you got just right there. That's a pet peeve. The hostile reaction, one commentator says, of unbelievers to their Christian associates is at the same time God's plumb line 
testing the metal of those who profess faith in Christ. Your faith is being proven right now in this political environment. And if you miss that, then you're too political. And if you're not becoming more like Christ in this environment, then you've missed it. What does it mean if we can barely survive Jesus' judgment? What does that mean? That means when God decides to judge evil, that judgment affects us because it refines us. It removes the evil from us too and makes us supposedly more like him, like a fire. The writer goes on to say, the thought is that the world's response makes it difficult for Christians to remain faithful to Christ to the end. Will Peter's readers have the resolve and stamina to persevere to the end? That's gonna be the question. Or will the insults, the abuse, the ostracism, and even more serious and threatening pressures drive them to deny Christ? To renounce their faith? Or to, re- or to return to pagan beliefs and living? It's difficult for even the righteous person to persevere to the end. We're all feeling that. You feeling how hard it is to be what God wants you to be in a world like the one we live in? Are you feeling that? You should be feeling that. But you shouldn't be taking on the characteristics of the world you're encountering. It should be refining you. What does it mean the house of God? Judgment begins in the house of God. That's the church, 1 Peter 2. That's where this whole series started. Do you see what Peter's saying? You are a chosen race. Listen to the political uh, implications of this text. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is an incredible text. Peter's going to say suffering is the norm. Uh, If you happen to suffer for doing what is right, he says you're blessed. Do not be terrified or shaken. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, you also arm yourselves with the same attitude Don't consider this strange if it's happening to you. Rejoice in the degree that you have shared in the suffering of Christ so that when his glory is revealed, you may rejoice and be glad. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory, who is the spirit of God, rests on you. So then, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator as they do. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's what Peter is saying. When society attacks you, attacks your beliefs, attacks anything that you hold dear, it's an opportunity to refine you and to be like your Savior who endured the same attacks. 
I keep up with the suffering around the world that Christians are going through. Just recently, 500 Ethiopian Christians slaughtered door to door by Muslims. This is all within the last 45 days. China's removed all, made, made churches remove all their red crosses, and if they don't, they don't get any of the social benefits of community, of their society. Uh, Hindu radicals in India beat a pastor brutally for two solid hours because he wouldn't deny his faith. A Pakistani Christian was charged with blasphemy because of a Facebook post that offended Muslims. That's happening everywhere, and that's a small little sample. The rest of the world is thriving as believers, enduring great hardship, and doing it with absolute Honor to the glory of God. So what is this text telling us? Because this verse right here is the key to First Peter, in my opinion. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own. Let's stop right there. That's your identity. That's who you are. So we need a theology that defines us as a church, determines how we function and operate together. And according to this text, we are a political entity. The only one that is global, uh, transnational, and transcultural, determined by who we are in Christ, as we'll see in the verses that come before it. Which, by the way, makes us a problem in any culture and under any political system because of our attachment to Christ. We are a problem for every culture. We can never be completely at ease in any culture because the the values of Christ are not the same as the culture. Our greatest political identity is belonging to the people of God. That's the statement. And our greatest political responsibility is maintaining that. We need to tease that out. We got our work cut out for us. So the first thing we need is a theology that helps define who we are. So we know how in the world we're supposed to be acting together in here, together, who we are as a community. Then the second thing we need is a theology of engagement. How do we honor God and value people in the culture that we live in? What does that look like? And notice what Peter says. Why are we this? What are we doing here That you may proclaim. There's the word. The virtues of the one who called you. These are the excellencies of God. 
who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So if that's our greatest political identity and our greatest political responsibility, what's our greatest political purpose or work in the world? It's proclamation. Proclamation of his excellencies. It's not an ideology. It's not a policy. It's not a methodology. It's not a geography. It's the wonders of being the people of God. It's the wonder of being this people. We're inviting people into that political reality. So James Smith said in his book, Awaiting the King, the very end, our most revolutionary political act is to hope. It's to hope. Set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you about your political stances. It's about hope. According to Peter, you can't lose hope in any culture. That Pakistani pastor, you should hear his testimony. Or I'm sorry, that, uh, that pastor that the Hindus in India, you should hear him describe what he was thinking during those two hours. They beat him. His mind set on a hope is beyond this world. That's the hope. You get beat up for two hours and you don't do what the people tell you to do. People want to know, what are you hoping in? But do it with courtesy, respect, good conscience, so that no one can accuse you of being anything but godly. That is the message of First Peter. Nothing, no one, no place, no person, no politic, no politician, no policy can affect that in any way. All I'm asking, are you ready for this journey? Are you ready to go through 1 Peter and let him just destroy you? Because he he's destroyed me. He has destroyed me. Don't hear me say that we don't have a responsibility to the culture we live in. But everything depends on how. And we have created some political idolatries among us. We really have. We have some political idolatries among us that need to be crushed so that we can focus on being who God wants us to be. We got to be prepared to take the judgment that whatever judgments come on us first. 
We have put our hope in some things that are not God. It's possible. It's possible that culture, politics, and what's happening in our world are doing more to form you spiritually than God himself is right now. And it's shaping some some attitudes and some actions and some feelings and some hopes that are not God's in you. I'm a pastor. Those are the things I care about. For Hillside. For me. I'll be honest with you. About five months ago, I was this close to saying, to saying I got to be done. I don't like politics, don't want anything to do with it. I don't have a choice. Because it's everywhere. And I have a responsibility to live in any culture God tells me to live in, and I need to know how to do that. And so that's what my responsibility is, and I have finally come around to it, although I was kicking and screaming and yelling at God because I didn't want to do it. I said, God, I didn't sign up to be political. Felt a little hopeless. Not sure who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to say, what we're not supposed to say. But if you're becoming more cynical, more angry, more intolerant, more distant, and more antagonistic, then you're not becoming who God wants you to be. This society is having more impact on you than you're having on it. So the question is this morning, where's your hope? Where is your ultimate hope and how does it show in the way that you deal with the world? I'll tell you what I don't want to be. I do not want to be Jonah. Who God couldn't convince that guy to love the the, the worst people in his life. He couldn't get him to do it. We're becoming that. Angry powders. And whenever God tells us to do it, we go, okay. That's what we're becoming. That's got to go, Hillside. Lord, we love you. We, we all would say there's a sense in which we've been so overwhelmed by what's happening around us that, that we've lost a little bit of sight of who we're supposed to be. And all we want to do in this series is make sure that we are never allowing anything to shape us but you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.